this too shall pass. And I think when we get to the other side, I think we'll look back on this as a really unfortunate situation that led us to a lot of personal and professional growth. And what I would say out there to the students, to the physical therapists, to physical therapist assistants is now is the time that you have an opportunity to really think not just outside the box, the box no longer exists. What can you do as an individual, as an institution, as a company to address that pandemic number one? but then also try to think forward. Kyle Ridgway coming on the show today. Kyle's, uh, I would say, a, one of the leading resources right now. He wouldn't say that, but I can say that about him. Uh, Kyle's board-certified clinical specialist in cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapist. He practices in the ICUs at the University of Colorado Hospital, where he assists with clinical and operational quality improvement, including medical ICU PT and system-wide activity and mobility promotion. See what I mean? He's This is his wheelhouse. Kyle is somebody who likes to share information Information and has put together a great resource, which we'll get into. And then I just wanted you guys to hear some insight from someone who's doing it. Best practices, things that you should be paying attention to, things he's doing to pivot and change the way he and the rest of his uh, his colleagues are, are pivoting and changing some of the big things and some of the real small things, right? So we wanted to give you some of that insight on the show. It's brought to you by Arias Medical Staffing, the leaders in travel physical therapy. And you might be thinking, hey man, travel physical therapy right now, but there's a lot of hard hit areas, you know, right now, and in the near future, if you're looking to help some of those hard hit areas, travel physical therapists, uh, another word for it is, uh, you know, repurposing a uh, location of assets. So if you're a physical therapist that wants to go to an area now or in the near future that needs some real help in those communities, Arias is going to know where to get you to do that in uh, positions in all different settings that you're going to need help in in all 50 states that they're going to need help in when this is over. So take a look online at Arius, A-U-R-E-U-S medical.com. That is A-U-R-E-U-S medical.com. Shows off to you, also brought to you by our friends from Owens Recovery Science. These guys are a leader in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training, BFR, if you've heard about it. If you got some time on your hands, huh? some of us are sitting around doing the thing we're asked to do, which is staying at home. Look into this if you're looking to add it for your clinical practice when this situation is over. OwensRecoveryScience.com, BFR. Look, they've got all the information and the clinical experts expertise to eventually apply this in your practice safely. And that's what you want to do. So OwensRecoveryScience.com. Without ado, Kyle Ridgeway on the show right now. The best conversations happen at happy hour. Welcome to ours. Welcome aboard. This is the PT Pinecast. Here's your host, physical therapist, Jimmy McKay. Kyle, what's up, man? It's Jimmy McKay. How you doing, buddy? Uh, that is a unique question that I usually start off folk conversations with myself, and I feel like everybody <laughs> everybody's going, how am I doing? And the, usually the response is, well, it's a big, deep breath, and just kind of, well, uh, you know what? I'm safe. I'm safe at uh, my brother's house, so that's what I like to focus on, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I saw online people saying, I'm stuck at home, change that sentiment to I'm safe at home. You know, little words like that matter, but I'm safe. How about you, man? You doing all right? Yeah, dude, we're... Uh doing the best we can. I mean, uh, it's kind of day by day. It kind of feels like the, at least for me, kind of the calm, the calm before the storm. Uh, as I'm sure we're talking about in the hospital, I'm actually leading our COVID therapy team. Gosh. And we have about 40 critically ill COVID positive patients and about 20 something that are kind of on the normal hospital floor. Wow. Uh, so we're, we're definitely in the thick of it. It kind of feels like, okay, we have this under control right now, but things could definitely get, uh, 
pretty damn crazy. So. Yeah. Give me, give me something for scale. You've got 40 critically ill COVID patients right now where you are, which is at the uh, ICU's University of Colorado Hospital. What's, yep. what's uh, and I know there's no such thing as normal, but what's, a, what's, a, what's an okay day in terms of like how many critically ill patients you guys can, you want to be able to effectively take care of at once? So our hospital is usually around 700 beds or 700 patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... We have seven specialty ICUs, and I think in total we usually have about 90 to 120 ICU beds, if I had to just guess, without actually counting. The thing that's different here is that, you know, these are kind of medical ICU or medically sick, critically ill patients. And so usually, you know, that unit only has, you know, 24 beds usually. Um, So while the absolute number of critically ill patients currently in our hospital is actually less than it normally is, um, the number of this type of patient is a lot higher. You right. know? So for, for illustration purposes, we cleared out our entire 24-bed neuro ICU. We cleared out our entire 24-bed cardiac ICU. We reopened a 17-bed unit that used to be an ICU and then transitioned to an outpatient space. So essentially, we have opened three new, quote-unquote, ICUs to manage this patient population wow. and drained our hospital capacity to 60% before this kind of all started. Wow. And this is, st- I mean, you know, the reports are still coming in and, and, and they're saying that, you know, as you just kind of alluded to, this is the, this is the calm before uh, more of a surge. Potentially, yeah. I mean, Colorado was probably a little bit, quote unquote, ahead of the curve as far as implementing social distancing before things got like really, really bad. But that being said, we just, we have no idea will a surge right. happen, what the growth rate was going to be, how many patients we're going to need to manage, so. You know, our institution is a big 12 hospital health system. So, you know, they have a like 15 point surge capacity management plan and we're on, you know, bullet point two or three. So right. well, well thinking well ahead of what the potential craziness could be. Yeah. Just put it bluntly. Since you're deeply involved in this, and I do want to make sure that the audience knows, uh, in the show notes of this episode, uh, wherever you download it, we're going to include a link that is to a public and open source Google Doc that Kyle was nice enough to put together. This thing's like nine pages long, and when I first took a look at it, I went on there, and you know how like when you're on a Google Doc, you can see who, how many other people are actually accessing yeah, yeah. it. It's like 50, 60. I've seen 80 people on this thing at once, so good on you for just saying, okay, people are looking for information. We know that the internet's great, but sometimes it has a lot of misinformation. And since this is this is your wheelhouse, you know, board certified cardiopulmonary physical therapist working at the ICU, uh, you decided to go out and just call the best information that was most applicable and put it together. It's nine pages, and again, we'll share it with you. Uh, you know, just talk about what's on there and what people can find, and kind of why you did it. Yeah, I think I mean it all started honestly. It, uh, I've been the one curating it, but man, a lot of people I have to say right up front have been big contributors to helping develop it, give me resources, um, you know, so just give those people a quick shout out for sure. Um, Brian Hall from Baylor University Medical Center and Baylor Scott and White Rehab Institute in Dallas, um, you know, Kenny Veneer, who works at the New York University Affiliate Hospital, um, you know, my, my COVID team here at University of Colorado Hospital, our rehabilitation director, Matt Gallagher, folks from UCSF, including Heidi Engel and uh, Maureen Coco, who's their director. John, uh, a director at NYU Langone, who's like in the thick of it. They've all really contributed. But the impetus was I was just starting co- to collect information as we were identifying at our hospital that this was going to be a thing and knowing mm-hmm. like, man, 
we need to know about this because I'm anticipating we're going to see these patients and we're going to need to have good information on the disease itself, good information on what we could potentially do. How are we going to think about this clinically and operationally? So I just started throwing some stuff together. And then really, as it started to build, Brian Hall, like in literally like 40 hours, put together like seven people to do a webinar um, that was co-hosted by the Health Policy Administration section, the Academy of Acute Care PT, the Cardiovascular and Pulmonary section. And so we wanted to make some resources. So we just started doing it here. And I was like, well, why don't I just make this a live Google Doc? Because information is going to be changing yeah. hour to hour. And so I figured, let's make a public Google Doc. I'll curate it. We can update it in real time. Then we don't have to be emailing people back and forth, things that are outdated. You know, it just it changes in real time. Uh, that's where it came from. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback and, uh, you know, insights from folks. I mean, really, actually all over the world and get emails from people in, in Spain, um, South America. So it's been super interesting. Um, as far as content goes, really what I wanted to do is, man, what's some updated information that people can be considering about potentially the pandemic itself? Um, what's some information kind of on the potential pathophysiology of it? But really, if we think about acute care physical therapy is how are we going to guide our resource allocation, um, both for patients who have COVID as well as patients who don't? kind of thinking from pandemic level all the way down to the bedside. And what I mean by that is if we think about the pandemic generally, you know, we want to decrease spread. We want to contain it. We want to limit exposure to it. And so we always have to keep those principles foundational. But then if things surge, if we really get a surge, if that curve really steepens, you know, there's going to be bottlenecks or choke points logistically in the healthcare system, in emergency departments, ICUs, ventilators, hospital beds themselves, and really kind of thinking, how can we move the needle on that? How can we bring some value? And so we kind of curated a bunch of sections on getting therapists both from a director level down to the bedside, thinking about, okay, where do we need to focus our resources to get patients off of ventilators, out of the ICU, out of the hospital generally? But then also, okay, if we're going to take those pandemic considerations into account, we don't want to, we want to contain it. We want to limit exposure. We want to limit spread. We want to conserve per, personal protective equipment. How can we go about evaluating or contributing to patient care with limiting our presence at the bedside, which is a weird thing for therapists. And I right. know our outpatient colleagues are really struggling with right. this, with, with having to go to telehealth. So then we made kind of an evaluation escalation scheme to take people through okay, how do I be a consultant on a case, make recommendations, make decisions, make assessments without actually going to the bedside? And, and I think that's a real mind twist for folks. It definitely was for me. You know, I'm used to, I'm used to doing some of this a little bit, but hey, you know, if I have any question, I'm not sure on a consult, I go to the bedside and see the patient. Right. Whereas now it's like, okay, I review the chart and ask myself, do I have enough information to make recommendations and potentially sign off this case? I discuss with the team, okay, what's the clinical questioning concern? What are you seeing? What can I add here? You know, then I'm probably going to have a discussion with the nurse. You know, what's this person's physical function and mobility status? What problems are you having mobilizing? What symptoms are they having? We've even gone to now calling into the room to talk with the patient because uh, we have windows from the outside of most of our patient rooms. So I can call in and ask the patient, right. my team can, hey, how are you feeling? Have you been getting up? How are you compared to normal? How comfortable do you feel potentially leaving the hospital if you had to and going home? You know, kind of all that normal social history um, and objective that we would take. Then we may call the family. Then we may actually call into the room while a nurse or another clinician is in the room and help guide the mobility to see kind of an outside the room assessment. 
Uh, and then we may actually decide to go into the room and evaluate the treat at the bedside. So yeah, that's kind of the long story long there on the document, kind of how it came about and what we were thinking about when we when we constructed it. Well, I think it's um I think what we're it, we're doing what we like to do best, which is we find what works, we find best practices, and then hopefully we share that with people because they can benefit from it. Just for me, looking at this uh, Google Doc that you put together, you know, it starts off with uh, a lot of information, as you mentioned, some webinars, some podcast interviews that have already been done. So if you're looking and and we know, and this is not a brag, but we've seen a gigantic spike in podcast downloads because people are looking for information and they're going to the sources that they typically do go to. We want to make sure we're sharing the right information. So that's what you're doing here with this doc. Then you go down to guiding principles and just finding from organizations that are established and do this, things like the CDC. But what I like about it is you give the link uh, to 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 the long form, right? To the long story long, but you also break it down into easy to digest bullet points. You're saying, here's what the CDC says for guiding principles. One, two, three, four. These are the main points. Now you can go into the link and, and read more, but we want to make sure we, we know that you're busy. These are the real big things you need to know about. And then you get into the nitty gritty, not just CDC in terms of pandemic guidelines, but now how do we get more practical for our profession? Physical therapy practice guidelines. Here's what we want you to have a mindset. Here's what we want you thinking about. These are the big points because a lot of people are number one, wanting to do something and they're being, and there a lot of people are being forced and being, um, you know, repurposed as physical therapists from maybe outpatient to inpatient. It's your first day in inpatient. This, this is your first day in inpatient, you know, during this, what do I need to be thinking of? What, what can I do to make sure I'm safe? My patients are safe. My family's safe. My coworkers are safe. Okay. Just like PT school here's the list, go through it. And this is what we want you thinking about. So I think it's a well put together list. And this thing is, I mean, it's just I mean, pages long. If you're looking for information, this is it to me. No, thank you. Yeah. You know, it uh, takes a village as they say. And, you know, when you're doing something all day, every day, this is the, this is the, like my, my brain and what we've right. been working on and thinking about right there on the page. So I think it, uh, you know, like you said, you know, we, we would find ways to make things work. We find ways to get to best practice, I would say, um, given the constraints of the environment and the situation. And I think this is, we hopefully um, will learn a lot from this and, and have this be a good learning experience for our profession in healthcare generally. But, um, you know, we should be doing this with a lot of other stuff. Well, I mean, why don't we just open source this and, you know, talk more regularly and collaborate more regularly, you know, crisis and necessity are kind of the the mother of innovation and invention, it seems, because um, I've seen a lot of collaboration across the country very openly and, yeah. and very quickly happen for some folks who are like really in the thick of it in New York and in Detroit and in San Francisco and Seattle, kind of helping give some preview to uh, right. uh, those of us who are kind of right on the cusp of the wave breaking it feels. So yeah, there's some great information out there. Great information. And then outside the United States too, some folks have yeah. corrected, published some, some kind of recommendations for PT in the hospital. Now they got that published and turned around very quickly. Yeah, I've seen I've seen this going around proning. Talk to me about that. What what do you know about proning? It's it's a, it's a way to uh, to position the patient to maybe prevent and keep someone off a ventilator. Yeah, so yeah, proning has an interesting history, and the you know the caveat here is I'm not an intensivist, so I'll, I'll know one millimeter deep on this information. And there's tons of great information out there that you can get, but it kind of came about actually for patients who are on ventilators. We're not oxygenating well. 
blood gases were still very deranged. And they, they found that for patients who have developed this really bad lung condition called acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS or ARDS, you may hear it called, and really require high levels of ventilatory support to both ventilate and oxygenate and keep their blood gases in normal range. They found that actually proning these patients um, for up to 16 hours a day, days on end, actually helped mortality, actually helped with um, oxygenation and ventilator setting. And from a mechanical standpoint, we do know that when we prone, kind of the matching of our blood flow and oxygen is better. Our ability to ventilate our posterior lobes is a little bit better. Um, so it, it seems to make sense mechanically. But what, what they are doing or what they're kind of experimenting with clinically with patients who have COVID is actually having them be in the prone position prior to ventilation or prior to mechanical ventilation, rather, mm-hmm. to see if they can either delay the need for vento- mechanical ventilation or fully prevent it. Um, so there's I've seen some pictures of you know patients in New York on like, heated high flow, high flow oxygen, kind of weighing on their stomach, texting and stuff like that. So I think we're still in the early phases on what, what's the indication and how can we use this prior to the need for mechanical ventilation. But it, its history comes from patients who have really, really bad lung sickness, ARDS, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we're doing that positioning with them while they're on the ventilator. So yeah. and it's an interesting thing. And then the kind of frontline observations say that even if it delays the need for intubation and mechanical ventilation for a little bit, that that's important time for preparation, important time to preserve use of ventilators, especially if we get into a shortage. So I'm sure we'll see more folks trying it. And it's, you know, not that every intervention doesn't have risk, but for a patient who's quote unquote relatively stable is on a normal medical floor or step down unit, is not on mechanical ventilation, is kind of cognitively aware and intact, there's not a lot of risk to trying the prone position and seeing if it helps yeah. um, with any of the things that the medical team is doing. So yeah. any, you'll any, probably see more of it. Yeah. I see more interesting pictures tweeted out of patients yeah. on their bellies. Yeah, anything we can uh, we can do that maybe keeps someone off a ventilator completely, you know, maybe freeing up one machine or keeping someone off a ventilator for a little longer to kind of, you know, to make sure they don't need to be to be ventilated for for that time. I think that's where I think that's where we are right now. I think that's what people are doing. They're running around looking for information and trying to find any little edge edge that they can get in this fight. Changing topics a little bit, looking down the line, talking about people with moderate and severe cases of COVID-19, survivorship burden, when we start to come out of this, um, is going to be something that's going to pop up a lot, I'm imagining. I mean, I just know a lot of people are frustrated in their own homes saying, I can't do anything, when ironically, sitting at home and doing nothing is the best thing you can do. That's going to start to come into play, I think, more and more. Yeah, it's um, one of the things, especially for these folks who require hospitalization and especially the ones who require critical care and mechanical ventilation, there's a a large body and a growing body of research that is kind of unequivocally illustrates that patients who survive a critical illness have just multi-system impairments for months to years after they're in the intensive care unit and kind of the example I use is, you know, if a patient comes into our medical ICU and they're in septic shock, they develop acute respiratory distress and they're on a ventilator for five, six, seven days. They came in with a just profound medical problem and they end up leaving the hospital with profound rehabilitation problems. If you look at the outcome studies, the outcomes papers, you saw these patients clinically and you didn't know what they had. 
you would think, oh, that guy must have had a brain injury. That guy must have been had some crazy neurologic issue. That person must have a neuromuscular disorder um, because they leave and kind of develop during their critical illness or can really significant weakness, really significant psychological problems, including PTSD and anxiety, really significant cognitive problems. And then, of course, really significant functional limitation and impairment, um, so much so that even five years after ICU discharge, a lot of these patients, if they're still alive or not back at work, wow. they're only walking like 50, 60% of their age-predicted six-minute walk test. And so there's this whole concept called post-intensive care syndrome. And it's not truly a syndrome. It's really just a phrase to help umbrella all of the possible issues that we know that patients face. And then those issues span body systems, they span physical performance. Even families are affected where families can have complicated grief and psychological problems. And so when I look at this COVID-19 population, they are developing very severe acute respiratory distress syndrome. And again, these are the patients in the hospital who require the ICU and the ventilator. They're staying on the ventilator for a long time. And I think there's going to be this long-term burden of survivorship and this long-term need for both rehabilitation and social and community support. But even the milder cases who require hospitalization, the fatigue that I'm seeing with these folks is remarkable. Um, that's probably the biggest symptom that people are kind of reporting is just this fatigue. And so I, I worry about these patients because from a safety standpoint, if we can get them home, we want them to go home. Now they're kind of quarantined and I'm concerned right. that obviously they will develop some sequelae from that. Uh, and then even just the folks, you know, like if you or I, you know, unfortunately got this and we had to quarantine at home, you know, I, I know some folks uh, through social media have gotten this and it really knocked them down. I mean, I've heard stories of uh, a guy in New York in his 50s, bike rider, he got this and he was like so fatigued he couldn't even change his clothes every day. Um, yeah. So uh, from, from mild to severe, I think there's could be some longer term sequelae as this pandemic kind of flattens out from an infection standpoint, I think there's going to be some survivorship issues uh, in the short and maybe even long term. I think that's where most of the profession is probably focused on in terms of being more comfortable, uh, you know, outside of acute and ICU physical therapists um, in terms of saying, okay, now, now what, how, how, let's get our mind wrapped around how we're going to be able to attack this because we're going to have people, just as you mentioned, um, who are dealing with things for months and years to come. That's where I think PT is, is looking forward to. You know, I saw someone on Twitter kind of comparing the foundation of the profession in terms of the polio epidemic, saying we were there to make sure and to, to, to get the, the country back to being better in terms of a rehabilitation profession after that. I think that's we're definitely going to feel probably more comfortable or more, more helpful at that stage. And I know everybody can't wait to get to the, the, the downside of that, that, that spike and focus more on rehabilitation and less on prevention, which is where we are right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard space, right? Yeah. I mean, this has kind of made, I think, every profession in healthcare rethink about, like, what what's my role? Right. Where do what I go? can I do? How do I add value? You know, when? And those are really hard and, I think, difficult questions. Um, we've kind of been forced to consider them. But I think, foundationally, they're good questions. And I think, you know, not to not to try to paint bright colors over a, over a dark situation. But I think if we reflect and, and think through this, we can, we A, can add value right now, but it helps guide us in the future yeah. for not just what could we do, but really what should we do? Where's our role? Where's our value? Um, where can we move the needle on some things? 
Yeah, I think we, I think uh, we got caught. Day. I think we got caught there. You know, we didn't. I mean, I, I, not to say anybody saw it coming, but I think a lot of people said, "Oh no!" You know, what now? What? Where do Where do yeah, I do totally. it? You know, and, and a lot of people got caught on their heels, um, especially in a profession, in saying, "What can I do?" And that's the thing. That's the thing I think that bothers most of the people that I and probably you know as physical therapists is we're not used to sitting around and waiting. You know, we're used to saying, "Okay, let's literally and figuratively get our hands on someone and work with someone." And that wasn't the best situation to do. I think that put a lot of people, it really confused a lot of, myself included, it confused a lot of people. Yeah, it's, uh, a lot of people are coming up with interesting solutions that may kind of permanently change how we deliver physical therapy. Um, you know, because one of the things that we've had to think about in the hospital, and I'll use this as an illustrative example, is we have a patient who's COVID-19 positive. Um, you know, again, considering all the pandemic considerations, considering they're in the hospital, considering, and again, our institution does not have a PPE shortage. I want to say that publicly, but we still want to conserve it. Mm-hmm. Now I'm really forced to say, what does this person really need from me? Actually, not what could I do? What should I do? Where is the value? Where is the things that really move the needle? What does this person actually need to receive to get better? So it's really made us take a very, very deep look in the mirror and and make tough decisions of, yes, this person needs us and, and we're going to treat them. Or, you know what, this is, and then we use this phrase a lot right now in the hospital, it's good enough, right? We cannot let perfect be the enemy of good, especially right. in a situation like this. And I think that's going to translate throughout the profession and my colleagues who own private clinics who are doing very innovative things to meet patient needs within the constraints of the pandemic. And they're asking them the, the same questions, right? Who really does need to see me in person right. at this time point? Oh, yeah. Is it, is it no one? Is it no one? Is it my whole caseload? How do I solve that problem, right? Because the question is there. And every clinic has to struggle with it, and especially, you know, you go to a, a bigger hospital system, like let's say a children's hospital or something like that that has tons and tons of outpatient clinics. And they have to say, who, who should we defer? Who shouldn't we? Who should have an e-visit? Who should, have, who should we try telehealth with? Who should we see in person? And it's all going to come back to kind of what are the guiding values, I'll use that with scare quotes, um, and considerations that you're going to use to solve that problem. Um, you know, if you use a, pan, a really global pandemic lens, people could probably make the argument, that no, no one should be going to outpatient PT. Like just no, like absolutely not, right? right? But if you dig in the weeds a little bit more and you say, okay, well, that makes sense, but we also we need to keep people away from the hospital mm-hmm. and keep people away from healthcare. So, is, is there a, a small subset of patients that maybe we there's no way not to see them in person? But if we see them in person, are we going to keep them away from the hospital? Are we going to keep them away from the emergency department? And, and maybe again, I don't have good answers to this. Right. These are just questions. But I know Jason Silvernail has transitioned. They've basically stopped all outpatient physical therapy and rehabilitation. Basically, so there's no rehabilitation in this time frame right now. But what he did is transitioned a handful of their outpatient clinics into musculoskeletal urgent care under the thought process of we don't want people with musculoskeletal conditions going to the emergency department for two reasons. We don't want them to be exposed and we don't want them from a operational throughput standpoint to bottleneck and clog up the emergency department. So let's funnel these patients over here um, to a profession that's very well suited to, to screen and take care of them and make decisions of, hey, no, you're good. 
you know, just this is a, this is a simple ankle sprain. Here's some treatment for it. Continue to shelter at home versus the person who comes in. And it's like, well, actually, you know, dude, you have a femur sticking out of your leg. You actually should go to the ED. Right. So I thought that was a really kind of novel approach, but like a good thought process to yeah. figuring out dang, what do we do? What do we in do? This situation. Yeah, we'll be talking with Jason Silver now coming up in a, in a couple of days about, about that transition and what people can learn from that. You know, a lot from what you just said made me think a lot of reflection when, when, when this is all over. And I want to hit that when really hard just to make sure people, yeah. myself included, focus on that when this is all over. It's going to make people, just as you mentioned, say, you know, just because it's the way we've always done it, well, necessity was the mother of invention, and we had to scramble. I mean, we're talking about really. We've been talking about telehealth for a long time now, but it's been a it's been the buzz phrase for the last year to year and a half, and people kept punting it and saying, eh, "It's in the future; it'll never happen." And look where we are right now. You know, I mean, it is an absolute uh, forefront topic right now, and, and people are getting it done because they have to. We're going to reevaluate a lot of things. Education, PT education, does it need to be doing done in person? Because right now, none of it's being done in in person, but it's still getting done. So uh, I think yeah. a ton of reflection after this. We need to have a beer in person when that's appropriate. Yeah. After this is over, when this is over, um, and there's going to be a lot to unpack and. The fortunate thing, we're going to learn a ton, right? And we're doing the best we can. Like we said at the top of this show, you're doing the best you can right now. We're going to learn a lot, but we're going to continue to learn through this whole process. We're going to get better as this thing goes on. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, there's the potential for some real growth where we, because again, we've been forced to, we, we look at some of the things that we either are doing or we assumed we need to do. And because we've had to really strictly prioritize, we make we may kind of almost, I don't want to say shrink, but almost kind of really focus in and say, dang, this is where the value is. Yeah. You know, this is where the important concepts are, the important things that we do, the important roles we can take on. This is really the core. Man, we've been doing all this stuff out here in the fringe that is possible, but maybe maybe we don't need it. Maybe right. there's other ways to deliver service. Maybe there's other things we can do. So I, I think those thought processes, while they're not comfortable, um, I think it's, it's going to cause an accelerated growth for, for our profession and potentially for healthcare too. I mean, yeah. oh, yes. you know, I work in a big, I work in a big health system and I mean, we have a virtual urgent care. We all of our, a ton of our outpatient services are now have gone to telehealth. So it's just crazy to see this, the pace at which that has scaled yeah. and how it's kind of, it's left no service or profession, you know, untouched. I mean, even within the hospital, right. You know, you consult cardiology. You know, cardiology goes in the room. They talk to the patient. They, you know, they lay their stethoscope on them. They do a subjective, right? Our consulting team now, you know, if we have a, let's say, a primary team managing a COVID-positive patient and they need to consult some other teams, those teams are not going in the room unless it is absolutely necessary for a procedure or some type of diagnostic um, situation. So their whole practice has changed too. And I, and, you know, outpatient obviously is even, even starker. So yeah, it's interesting times for sure. Yeah. Real thinking. This is the parting shot. Rock tape, helping you get your patients stronger, longer. Find them online at rocktape.com slash medical. They're bringing you the parting shot more than just a kinesiology tape company. They are a movement company giving you the classes, the tools, the education, the research to get your patients moving stronger, longer. Find them online at rocktape.com slash medical. That is rocktape.com slash medical. Parting shot of, uh, of motivation. 
Nation. That's what we've we've kind of changed it to uh, right now. What, what words of uh, what words of wisdom or words of motivation would you want to pass along to physical therapists and physical therapist assistants uh, listening to you right now in this situation? You know, I would say that you know the, the first thing and maybe the only thing is you know this this too shall pass. Yeah. And I think when we get to the other side. We'll be able to take a breath. We'll be able to kind of, as you said, nicely reflect, digest, and unpack this. And in the future, I think we'll look back on this uh, as a really unfortunate situation that led us to a lot of personal and professional growth. And what I would say out there to the students, to the physical therapist, to physical therapist assistants, whether you work in acute care, a neural rehab, you own an outpatient clinic, is now is the time that you have an opportunity to really think not just outside the box, the box no longer exists. And we have this pandemic problem in front of us. And what can you do as an individual, as an institution, as a company to address that pandemic number one, but then also try to think forward, think forward to what are going to be some of the second, third, and fourth order effects and sequelae of this, both for healthcare, for patients, and start to plan and fill those those gaps and those needs. And I would put a plug that this is a time for folks outside the hospital to think of post-intensive care syndrome and think of some of the issues that critical illness survivors have. And physical therapists are extremely well suited to address those. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for us to take on really great roles and really valuable and fulfilling roles. And I really look forward to our profession continuing to thrive through and really after this. And the last thing I'm going to end with is I'm lucky. I, I have a, I have a, I have a job. Um, I'm coming to work every day. I will admit it, it, it's scary, stressful, confusing, and a lot sometimes um, to be in this and work with these patients. But I really feel for the therapists and students out there who you know work for companies that are struggling, um, have been laid off, um, or having to make just heart and gut-wrenching financial decisions on do I lay off my my therapist? Can am I going to be able to make payroll? We're going to have to shut down our acute rehab unit. Man, I just I I feel like I am doing hard stuff every day, but I can't imagine those decisions you guys are having to make. So hang in there. Yeah, yeah. Our time to uh, to step up is now, but it's also going to be bigger later, and and this too shall pass. And we are a profession. We're in this together. So appreciate you taking some time out and a half hour out of your busy day because I know you're busy and for for talking to us and sharing some insight and maybe maybe giving somebody out there an idea or two or maybe just feeling better about the situation we're in. And uh, again, we're going to include a link to that Google Doc where it's uh, just growing more and more information on there. So if you're looking for information, um, this is the spot. I would suggest you start. And so Kyle, thanks so much, man. And uh, good luck to you. We'll, we'll, we'll meet for a beer in uh, person when this is over. Yeah. Virtual cheers for now. Everyone <laughs> wash their hands, keep your distance. Don't touch your face. The PT Pinecast is a product of PT Pinecast LLC. It is hosted and produced by PT Pinecast CEO, Jim McKay and CBO Sky Donovan from Marymount University. We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. This has been another pour from the PT Pinecast. The PT Pinecast is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present.
More on the show at ptpinecast.com. Do you want to improve your skills as an orthopedic physical therapist? Do you want to practice at the top of your profession? Have you ever thought about earning your orthopedic clinical specialist certification? Well, imagine how great it would feel to go into the OCS examination feeling confident and prepared that you'll pass on your first attempt. If you were given a plan that was simple to follow, if you were given lessons that were easy to understand, and you were given sample tests that sharpened your skills. However you're comfortable studying, the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy's Current Concepts course can make you more prepared and confident for the OCS examination. But it can't help you unless you take the first step and make the investment. And today is your chance. Go to orthopt.org and take the Current Concepts course from the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy. That's orthopt.org and the Current Concepts course from the Academy of orthopedic physical therapy. This is the PT Pinecast. New Step created the first product of its kind 25 years ago. That was the New Step recumbent cross trainer. Now it's a mainstay in rehab with physical therapists worldwide. New Step now continues its tradition of innovation with the New Step Transit, another innovation in recumbent cross trainers for physical therapists, delivering real-time biofeedback with this piece of equipment, letting you use it in meaningful ways for awareness of physical performance, uh, goals, identifying a correcting deficits or imbalances. Take a test drive or find out more at newstep.com. That's N-U-Step.com. Online at newstep.com. This is the PT Pinecast. Want to thank Brooks IHL. That's Brooks Rehabilitation Institute of Higher Learning. Offering residencies, fellowship education, orthopedics, women's health, geriatrics, neurologic PT, pediatrics, sports. That's an overview of their residencies. Check out what they have to offer at Brooks IHL. World-class educational opportunities to the local and regional community. Check them out, brooksihl.org. Our home on the internet. ptpinecast.com. Created by Build PT. Build PT provides marketing services specifically for private practice PTs. From website development and hosting. Providing content marketing solutions for PT clinics across the country. See what Build PT can do for you today at buildpt.com.